I think the challenge of AI is that we have to think in completely different ways. We have to think in a completely different exponential way. I've always wanted to do this and never could. Well, now I actually can. And we can do it at very low cost with no time, with no additional people. We can create growth and change in ways we never thought. So the only thing that's holding us back is our imagination and our capacity to absorb that change. That's it. Welcome to the Next Insights Podcast, intersecting science, technology, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Morrissey, strategic futurist and founder of Next Collabs. This podcast explores the transformative potential of generative AI and its many applications for personal, professional, and business growth. Join us where we celebrate the next insights, those aha moments that shift your point of view and open the door into the next paradigm. You'll hear the latest ideas and thought-provoking conversations with industry experts, authors, thought leaders, equipping you with the strategies to harness the relentless pace of change in the AI era. Whether you're a CEO, leader, or interested in personal growth, this podcast will give you the insights to leverage AI to amplify human potential and consciously shape the future for humanity first. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the Next Insights Podcast. My name is Michael Morrissey. I'm your host. And on today's episode, Disruption Mindset and Dynamical Change with Charlene Lee. Welcome to the show, Charlene. Really excited to have you here today. We met a few months ago through Gary Bowles in Q4 2023. Charlene is a longtime friend and colleague of Gary's. Gary is coincidentally the co-founder with myself at Next Collabs, and Charlene is a strategic advisor to our group. And together, we're all collaborating on a shared project and vision to enable or guide companies through this AI threshold to become AI-powered organizations and realize the next generation of your growth and business. Charlene is a New York Times bestselling author and speaker. She is a transformational leadership and strategy expert. Her massively transformative purpose, catalyzing transformation to maximize human potential. And she has focused recently on AI as a huge unlock moment for individuals and organizations that can't be ignored. She has six books, including The Disruption Mindset, Why Some Organizations Transform While Others Fail, and her seventh, Threats, Bets, and No Regrets, How to Create a Winning Generative AI Strategy, is slated for release in early 2024. The book provides a practical and timely 90-day AI strategy roadmap for organizations to transform into AI-powered orgs. Charlene is frequently quoted by leading media channels such as The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, Reuters, and the Associated Press. She has appeared on 60 Minutes, The McNeil NewsHour, ABC News, CNN, and CNBC. She is a much sought-after public speaker and has keynoted top conferences such as the World Business Forum, World Economic Forum, American Society of Association Executives, South by Southwest, and Web 2.0. She's a graduate of Harvard Business School, and she currently lives in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, and I thought we'd start by just talking about, let's say, the overall theme for today's episode, the disruption mindset and dynamical change. And I'd like to break it up into three sections. Let's say for the sake of simplicity, this triad, old, new, and next. Older legacy would be the one-time disruption moment related to your book, which coincidentally was written in 2019, 
Fast forward to 2024, five years has passed. And I would say we've gone through two foundational kind of moments, the COVID moment and the AI moment. Those are massive sort of structural disruptions. So we're going to be talking about those shifts today. So old is legacy, one-time disruption, new, I would call the COVID moment, decentralized companies and organizations in the cloud. And then next, the AI moment, AI-powered companies and organizations horizontally augmenting the workforce and vertically automating core business pipelines and infrastructures. So let's start with the legacy or the old. You know, you say disruption doesn't take days off. And you talk about in your book, The Disruption Mindset, three elements that basically constitute disruptive transformation. Embrace the big gold moment, inspiring disruptive movements within organizations with disruptive leadership, and then flex cultures as an operating system. So the big gulp moment, that was a, a very powerful concept that burned the boats. I think that's foundational. That's almost like step one. How do you do that? Well, you make a commitment to what the future is going to bring. And oftentimes, even though you say, this is the future we're going to go towards, when you hit that wall of resistance, because at some point you will hit it, and ne- disruption is never easy. It's when you hit that wall, like, oh, this is too hard. Let's go back. But if you burn the boats, there is no going back. If you cut off all escape routes that the only way forward is to go forward, the only way you can go is that direction. You can't go back to where you were before. So this is literally burning the boats to say, when you have no choice but to move forward, how will you act differently than knowing, well, this is optional. We can kind of change our minds and go back to where we were before. And if we saw that in COVID, we wanted to go back. We so wanted to go back to the world that we knew. There was no going back. So we had no choice but to find a new way forward. So in that case, the boats were burned for us. But to do that for ourselves, I think, is a, is a really important step to having a, that disruptive mindset. Yeah, we could easily segue quickly into the COVID moment, but let's hold. Because <laughs> I agree, that was a burn the boats moment. And that forced us through the threshold into Zoom. Otherwise, we would be trying to go back to work. So you also talk about the idea of creating a movement within a company to create that kind of energy that's across the organization, across the company. And it really takes what you call disruptive leadership. And you also talk about, based on my background as a Jungian, you talk about the archetypes of these leaders and the kinds of leaders that are required to really lead a kind of movement within an organization, to create that kind of energy, to kind of like continuously kind of stay aloft amid the tendency to want to go back to comfort, security, safety, et cetera. Right. Every leader in an organization falls into one of these four archetypes. They have the sort of natural disruptive leaders who are called realist optimists. They're the ones who can see the future. They're the optimistic about what the future could be, but they're also very realistic about the tasks you have to take to move to that point. Then you have some people who I call the managers. And these are the ones who are just a little bit hesitant. And they are, again, very good managers, but they're just not used to change. You have the worried skeptics who are really holding back, but they also play a very important role where if you can look around the corners, anticipate the things that could go wrong, that also plays a very important role. And then you have the people who are just waving their hands and saying, let's go to the future, but they're the very inspirational talkers. They're not the ones who necessarily would be the ones who could drive that change. 
And creating a movement to tie all this together is important because you have these different archetypes, having a vision of where you want to be, and then pulling people, inspiring people to follow you. That is the number one task for a leader. Leaders create change. And if you're not creating change, that's fine. You're a manager of the status quo. But leaders create change, and you have to build a movement of people behind you who are inspired by the change you want to create. And that's how you create disruption, is the bigger the change, the bigger the movement that's needed to get people to follow. Now, one of the things that I think we both really have a real passion for is the human dimension and culture. And especially in this moment when we move through into, you know, exponential technology is almost like dominating everything. But at the end of the day, you know, we're dealing with people and with teams and with the field effect of a team that really, you know, wants to be together. And how do you develop a disruptive organization that has a culture that is super adaptive? Well, again, culture is made up of beliefs and the behaviors that stem from those beliefs. Or the other way around is that you have certain behaviors that develop and beliefs go and back those up. So it's a continuous circle of how these things reinforce each other. Beliefs and behaviors, that's what makes up the culture. So if you wish that your culture was more adaptive, more agile, more resilient in the face of change, then you have to fundamentally look at what are the beliefs that are holding you back from believing that to be true, that are holding you back from the behaviors that would look to be this. So what are the underlying beliefs? And a lot of them are things like, well, we don't have permission to try and experiment things. We don't have a great relationship with failure. Failure is not something. We talk about failing fast and failing smart, but we really don't like to fail. We don't have a healthy relationship with failure. We have fears. How do we do with those fears? So being able to, as a organization, as an organization and as a culture, to have beliefs, these set of values, that you hold to be true and then you act on, it's a really important part. And if you don't have the right beliefs, if you have a belief, for example, that you don't have permission, then how do you actively switch that belief with new behaviors, new stories, new rituals that institutionalize and create cultural moments that people can key on like, oh, we don't believe that. Remember, we don't believe that we don't have permission. In fact, we have a lot of permission. We have a lot of agency. And this is how we will behave. This is how we do behave. This is how we think and feel in our new culture. That is really hard to do. Yeah. So you had broken it up into like structure, which is you say is the sort of the backbone, the processes, the lifeblood and the lore, the soul or the stories, which resonates for me the greatest, like how to create those kinds of the new sort of story that we all kind of believe in. Speak more about those three aspects uh, constitute the operating system. Sure. I mean, when people think about organizational culture and everything, they, they tend to want to point to things they can write down. Like, okay, we're going to change organizational structure so people learn to work in certain groups and teams. So structurally, we're forcing people to work together. That's one way to create culture. Another way is we're going to do things in a different way. Our behaviors, our processes how do you ask for permission? Do you need to ask permission even for certain things? Or do we just say within these guardrails, as long as you stay inside those guardrails, go for it. That could be just a removal of processes and putting new ones in place that allow for greater freedom and autonomy. And then the soft stuff that isn't written down, the stories that you tell, the rituals that you have, the symbols that you have, 
it's just like looking around, like things can become very symbolic, a particular pen or a symbol, a, a special shape or something. The stories, you can invent new stories. You can have new rituals. These are all things that change culture and they become part of that operating system again. The problem is most people do not take their culture seriously. They don't think about how am I going to intentionally create the culture that I want. They just say, well, this is the culture that I have. I'm kind of stuck with it. They fundamentally don't believe they can change it. But I've seen companies go through huge cultural change in a matter of months and weeks. And it's possible if you start changing those beliefs and the behaviors associated with them. And they're especially effective if you start with your leadership. When people see leaders changing, they go, well, they're, they're really serious about this. They're not just telling us to do it. They're doing it. That becomes the fastest way to change your culture is when your leaders actually change your culture first. I mean, I could see that if you have an empathic leader who just has a tendency to be a sort of empathetic with his employees or her employees, and I've experienced that before, that almost like sort of subconsciously sets a kind of like a parameter or gives you permission to be a little more thoughtful and caring in a sense like some it's almost like a heart center that kind of starts to come through i care about you and that sort of permeated at least the culture that i was in for many years where the leader the president had that sort of empathy first kind of approach to his people and it just creates a beautiful field effect right and it's a little bit harder for some leaders who just like you know i'm not touchy-feely and like you don't have to be touchy-feely to be empathic empathy stems from having an experience, having an emotion, and understanding how somebody could be having that same emotion. That's all it is. And Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, made empathy the foundation of his leadership practice. And so the one thing we have to do as an organization is have empathy for our customers, have empathy for ourselves and each other. That's the foundation for being great. And he has consistently done that through a very diverse and global organization. <laughs> so... This can have all types. It can show up in so many ways. But it basically says, instead of leading from just strictly numbers, we're going to try to understand each other and feel each other. But it doesn't mean you have to show up in a touchy-feely way. You can basically lead the same way you have always have, but have a different, a slightly different mind shift that can make a huge difference to how you show up as a leader. I mean, it reminds me of design thinking, right? Where you start with empathy relative to your customer and that becomes part of your design process and touch point and you start to develop and it makes sense that if you're going to build a movement that you have to walk the walk yourself as the leader like that's where you are literally the you know you're the resonator you're the the center of gravity and if others see that that's the way you're operating then they follow suit they mirror that right these are a lot of these are subconscious processes it's not something that you can just externalize and say, okay, we've got a document, we're going to follow it. Right. You know, one of the things that I find so fascinating about leadership is that you can hear people all the way back thousands of years ago, through all very many different cultures, talk about these truisms about leadership. And it comes from knowing yourself and then being able to extend that into knowing others too as well. But you have to know yourself first to lead yourself and then you can lead others. So it's, again, Creating that movement, that sense of change, that sense of comfort with discomfort is a really important part of being a disruptive leader. Because if you're going to ask other people to be uncomfortable in creating change, then you have to become uncomfortable with creating change too. 
It is not comfortable. Change is hard. And the bigger the change, the more discomfort you're going to create. But you also know why you do it. You take on that discomfort. You take on that fear. You take on that nervousness and excitement, anxiety. And the difference between living in anxiety and nervousness and living in excitement is one simple thing. It's confidence. It's confidence knowing not that you're going to be successful, but knowing that you're going to be fine no matter what the outcome is. And you have that total confidence in yourself and your organization that we're going to be okay no matter what. So let's go on this adventure. Let's see what happens. We are preparing for a rough journey ahead. And we're going to prepare and prepare. We're not just going to wing this. We're going to prepare. But we're going to prepare for a tough journey ahead because we know it's worth it. In your book, you talk about disruption doesn't create growth. Growth creates disruption. And there, I remember there's one diagram in the book. There's a small bubble over here, and there's a very large bubble of where you want to go, where growth occurs, and there's a gap. And so it's like, you know, how do I get here? And I think part of what we're talking about here, and I think we both apply this personally in our own lives, is in a sense, you almost have to develop the practice of self-disrupting yourself, like almost daily. To go through that threshold, I, by the way, I got one of those cold baths and I stuck it in the basement and I jump in there after a run. And I, before I put my toe in, it's like, I don't even want to go here. Everything's telling me no. And then I do it. I get through that threshold of, you know, a minute or two minutes in there. I come out and I tell you what, I just get a dopamine and endorphin hit and it's a small win. And I think just constantly sort of in a personal sense, I would say this is a practice that every leader needs to embrace is the practice of self-disrupting. And that's something that you could bring to your culture too, that if we're not going through some level of discomfort, we're not really growing. Right. I so agree with that. And I'll give you a very poignant example. Last night I was judging a hackathon and it was a RAG hackathon, R-A-G, Retrieval Augmented Generation. Yeah. I don't know what that actually is. I know the broad parameters of it is. I do not know yeah. the underlying technology. And this is a hackathon with people playing with all the different technologies and they're presenting and I'm one of the judges. In fact, I'm one of the lead judges. And um, I'm sort of going, I'm going to learn a lot today. <laughs> I'm hanging by my fingernails, watching 45 projects, three minutes each, going like, this is way out of my comfort zone. They're talking about stuff I have no idea. By the end of the evening, I had learned a lot. I was beginning to catch on what RAG could do, what it couldn't do, and learn a lot. And I put myself out there in a very visible way to be a judge you know, evaluating these projects. And I'm like turning to my fellow co-lead and who's a former partner of mine. And I'm like, I really don't know what RAG is. <laughs> so he's like, I don't know either. We're gonna, And he goes, I guarantee you, half the people in the Zoom don't know either. So we're all here to figure it out. So it's like one big improv, right? It's, you know, and I like doing these kinds of things because it increases my learning speed, my velocity of learning so much faster then if I were like, okay, before I go, I'm going to have to steady up. I have to feel comfortable. I know everything about RAG and the underlying technologies, how it's used. I'm like, you know, I'm going to learn on the fly here. I did a little bit of research, so I knew a little bit more than I did before. And then when, and I know so much more now of what the limitations are. So it's sort of trial by fire in some ways, and I wouldn't recommend it like constantly all the time. It's so important to be able to take breaks, to recover. Like any athlete, anybody who works out knows how important it is to work hard and push your limits to grow your capacity. But it's also incredibly important to have that recovery period. 
So what you find in disruptive organizations, they go through these cycles of stretch and then recovery, stretch and then recovery. But the reasons they can continuously stretch is that they have recovery periods because otherwise stretching, stretching, stretching without a break just leads to stress. And that is not a recipe for long-term success. I mean, that's something that we can come back to at the very end relative to your AI strategy roadmap and how to break it up into smaller wins and have recovery built into that. So this is, you know, it's a a process. It's not a one-time fix, right? Okay, so let's go to new and the COVID moment and decentralized companies, distributed teams, organizations in the cloud. Next Collabs is starting in the cloud. If you've read Balaji Srinivasan's book, The Network State, you know, cloud first, land last, but not land never, because eventually you instantiate these in different hubs all over the world. And the COVID moment, like burn the boats, we had no choice, but we got pushed into Zoom. And it was like the most amazing kind of proof of concept, notwithstanding the downside. It was also like we got pushed through into Zoom, into the cloud. I formed the next collective in 2019 into 2020 because that was all that was available. And here we are in this kind of moment where we're super connected in the 2D. We do miss the 3D. I flew to San Francisco recently. We met in the 3D. And I think that was very transformative, right? When you can hug someone and you see them eye to eye, that there's a whole nother level of trust that gets kind of like grounded in the relationship building process. But it's just as Keith Ferrazzi says, let's not go back to work. Let's go forward. He was preaching that all through COVID. I'm going, absolutely. I see this. This is happening. And it did happen. In my world of architecture and city building, most central business districts in North America have to go through major transformation and become mixed-use districts because the towers are half empty and the retail, the base is dying. And I think it was an unsustainable model anyway, this kind of like separation of work-life from everything. At the same time, we need that sort of 3D touch point. So how do you see the COVID moment and sort of the disruption mindset? What's your update to the disruption mindset as we passed into the COVID moment? A couple of things. First of all, the disruption mindset virtually or in person is really similar. The difference is we build trust and connection in many, many different ways. And to invalidate the virtual way to build trust, I think is a mistake that you can't possibly have a stronger team if it's 100% virtual. You can. The reality is those virtual teams still meet in person. They really do try to get together once a quarter or annually or something, or they have hubs or something because they all understand the importance of that in-person connection, not to necessarily do the everyday work, but to build trust and connection and that connective tissue because we are very visual animals by nature. We understand things in a spatial space. So when we can deepen the relationship in that way, it becomes just even stronger. Now, that doesn't mean that relationship can't be strong and develop. There are people who have deep, deep relationships. I was looking back and I've written every single book virtually with my collaborators, every single book, even back to 2007, 2008, before my first book with Josh Burnoff. He was in Boston. I was in San Francisco. And we wrote the book completely separate from each other. Now, we had the benefit of having worked together for eight years, most of that side by side. Actually, no, most of it was not side by side. A lot of it was virtual again, but we had worked together. We had lived life. We had gone through ups and downs over those eight years. I had managed him. 
He had managed me. We had both yelled at each other. We had both shared wonderful laughter moments together. We had lived life. And so our relationship was solid when we began writing a book. And so I, I look at these things that say we, we have to have this or we have to have that. Relationships are incredibly varied and also very resilient. They will rise to the occasion of what you need if you invest in them. And that is the problem, is that most people in the in-person cultures of organizations of old, we never really invested. We were not intentional about building those relationships. They just happened. We had the luxury of just random collisions in the kitchen to build relationships, mm-hmm. going out to work afterward. I mean, it was all serendipitous and wonderful. When you're virtual, you have to be very intentional. When we come together, what are we going to do to build those connections? How are we thinking about building those connections even virtually? How do we create that depth of experience? How do we have lived with each other and created experience that become bonding experiences to build trust? So that intentionality is not something we've ever done before because we had the luxury of just random serendipitous collisions. And we had you know, like the cocktails hours on Zoom. That doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not the solution. So I think we're still trying to figure it out. I think some companies have been, quote, 100% virtual, have done a really good job at building cultures, as we've talked about before, in the organizational structures, in their processes, in the rituals that they have, in the stories that they tell and share with each other and are creating in real time, in the symbols that they use in their meetings and their work. Even in the presentation templates, what goes into them and how do they convey culture every single time you use all the templates even? So being very intentional about what is important to your organization and driving those beliefs and values is a really important part in this new world. Yeah, it's like we have to design for this sort of digital version. We're going through that threshold, I would call it fidgetal, where physical and digital are merging. In architecture and city building, we talk about third spaces. And in a way, the office, you know, the conference room or the cafeteria, or if you're more advanced and you're in a Google-esque kind of office space, likely you're designing for collaborative spaces like Steve Jobs, push people into the hallways. So you kind of promote intersectionality, drives innovation. But in the cloud, on a Zoom call, I love your idea of bringing ritual to that and repetition. Now, one of the things I'd like to ask you is, for example, with Next Collabs, we're starting to meet every single day for an hour touch point. And then everyone goes away and does what they need to do. And I think this is the beginning, like, you know, you would get in the car or get in transit and you'd go to the office and there would there be that predictable ritual of showing up. And now you have to kind of show up in the cloud. So are there, you know, there's Monday and there's all these different apps that are now starting to support and build out this kind of project management or how to create teams in the cloud. Do you have any thoughts around how to support that kind of ritual and that sense of belonging within a team and touch points for yeah, that Yeah, let team. me give you an example, because I think even if you meet physically, you have to be very intentional about the time that you spend together. First of all, coordinating the times you will be in the office and also differentiating that physical time, that meeting time that you have with each other, whether it's virtual or physical, in a very intentional way. What do you want to accomplish during this time that cannot be accomplished any other time? How do we treat this like this precious, most important hour of the day? And that requires planning, requires processes. For example, if this is the key point, it's not the only point we connect. Are we using Slack channels or Discord or something 
in the background to maintain that continuity in the other 23 hours of the day, whatever it is that people work. So you can asynchronously coordinate with each other. Is there a Google Doc or some sort of running notes that provides continuity from place to place, from one meeting to the next? What happens if somebody can't attend for whatever reason? Is the meeting recorded and a summary is given to everybody? Is the expectation that everybody read the summary? So these are all different practices that come into the way that your team wants to operate in the virtual space, but also carries out into the physical space so that when we come back together in a physical domain, what's new and different about that that's unique than from our daily one-hour meeting, because you better be different. The intentionality of that physical meeting should absolutely be different. Because I, I work and talk with you all the time throughout the day on my Slack channels. I see you on Zoom one hour a day. And then when we get together for a day in physical space, how is that different? What kind of work is reserved for that precious physical time? And it better be different. It better be mind-blowing because it's really expensive, expensive, so to speak. Good point. I mean, it is hard to believe that people would come to a conference room and spend half a day for one meeting to get to that conference room. We'd have like 20 or 30 people around a conference room to talk about a project. Probably cost us a fortune every time we did that. And now we only do that once a month, you know, to run massive projects. And it's super convenient. And at the same time, when we do get together, I think this concept of intentionality and how precious it is like the 3D physical kind of uh, container of meeting each other in person and those subtle signals and all those reassurances that can go on is more meaningful than ever. So Mm -hmm. taking a quick break from this week's episode to tell you how to get even more free insights on AI, science, technology, and consciousness delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up for the next Collabs newsletter, where we unpack the latest in AI every Wednesday. When you subscribe, you get the insights from myself, Gary Bowles, and our team of experts at Next Collabs. We're sharing what we're discussing, thinking, and reading weekly in the world of AI. Why join? We're not about filler. We strive to offer high-value content to keep you on the leading edge of the AI era. We have our finger on the pulse and want to share that with you and keep you posted on our free panel discussions and events. It's your weekly touch point to staying ahead of the curve. Click the link below in the show notes and sign up for the next Collabs newsletter. Now, back to the episode. As a segue to what's next, one of the things that we're focusing on in the month of February in next Collabs on our Monday AI sessions, we meet every Monday. We meet Monday, Wednesday, Friday within our community. So that's part of what bonds us together as a community. And we're also a company. We could talk a bit about that, that within every company is hidden community. And I think Gen AI couldn't actually surface some of that, sort of the inherent qualities of your workforce. But the idea of, for the month of February, we're going to be focusing on collaboration plus AI. And it happened to be on a really powerful Miro board presentation that they had the past week, where they were talking about AI and storytelling on Miro board. There had to be about 100 people all on the Miro board, all at the same time. And I thought to myself, That is the next gen of how we're going to connect. Because if we can all kind of like tune up and train up on these tool sets individually, I think we've all been doing that in 2023. I think the theme for 2024 is the power of what happens when a whole team is trained up on these tools and then they function as the field effect of collaboration 
Now you've got an AI-powered team. That's the next level up. So let me preface this by saying next, the AI moment, November 30th, 2022. I think we knew it as kind of like, you know, the pioneers. We go, hey, by the way, that just happened. That was a renaissance moment. That's just not just any old moment. And then AI-powered companies and organizations horizontally augmenting their workforce with AI tool sets and workflows, and then vertically under the hood, automating core business pipelines and infrastructure. Let's talk about your thoughts. You know, the disruption mindset 2019, fast forward to 2024, the continuous disruption mindset, is that the new update? Yeah, you know, the thing about the disruption mindset, you know, I I pointed to single points in time that were extremely disruptive to organizations. And the reality is, is that you go through multiple disruptions, you go through multiple crises. Back in January 2023, one of the words of the day that was put out there was permacrisis. And I thought that captured the moment perfectly because it feels like we're going from one crisis to the next. It's never ending. And we used to say, well, as soon as we get through this, we can focus on everything else. There's no getting through it anymore. Mm. And so when you are in a situation where you are constantly constantly thinking about just managing disruption. It becomes a way of life. I've mentioned to you, Michael, that I try to make disruption a part of my life every single day. And so when new disruptions come along, like, oh, I know what this looks like. I know what it feels like. And I have the confidence to get through this. And when you can do that as an organization, what AI does, it creates such a level of disruption because now every single person in your company has the ability to use this incredibly transformative tool to disrupt themselves, to disrupt the ways that they have always done their job, to automate the tasks, to get rid of repetitive tasks. And if you give them, if you release them to go and experiment with that, they will find all the use cases that make sense. They will make very good use of the 20 to $25 a month that you need to pay to get them to chat GPT, ideally the Teams version, so it's all behind a firewall. And you can just let them go for it. You have you know training, you have all the guardrails, but as I like to say, if you want to go fast, like super fast, have really good breaks. Then you can build the fastest engine knowing that at any point you can stop if needed. So when you have really great breaks, you can go fast like they have Formula One drivers. So great breaks gives everybody reassurances that we are going to be safe, gives you the confidence, again, to try a lot of things, knowing that a lot of them are not going to work, but some of them might actually work. And if every single person in your organization can do this and use these tools to become superhuman, to have superpowers, which is what it really feels like. It's like, wow, I never think I could do this. I can actually do that. I can have a collaboration with 100 people and use AI to bring out all and surface all the ideas so that 100 people can have a conversation at the same time instead of one person taking a turn. And what inevitably happens is only 10 people talk. Now, what if you could listen to everybody simultaneously across the entire organization, listen to every single customer and be able to have understanding to use that to make great decisions. Totally changes the game. So I think the challenge of AI is that we have to think in completely different ways. We have to think in a completely different exponential way. I've always wanted to do this and never could. Well, now I actually can. And we can do it at very low cost with no time with no additional people, we can create growth and change in ways we never thought. So the only thing that's holding us back is our imagination and our capacity to absorb that change. That's it. Mm, Fascinating. 
that is, I mean, you talk about what's next. We've never, we've never had it at this speed, at this capability. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's very remarkable about this moment. I always use the example of the Renaissance, which it wasn't until the 19th century that they actually named that era. Can you believe that? Like, post-rationally, historians said that was the Renaissance era. That was a big shift from the medieval to the Renaissance. But this one, we know what's happening. <laughs> we, we're right in it. Like, this is a phase transition. And we're kind of aware of the phase transition that in your recent LinkedIn session with Jeff Maggio and Calda from the CEO of Casera, I had one of those insight moments this past week when I saw your discussion with him, AI as your thought partner. And that just kind of just blew my mind. That's a, such a simple way to describe this phase transition that we're going through in real time in this moment, because we're adapting to having a thought partner. For me to do an RFP, if you said, okay, Michael, it's time to do an RFP, literally my energy level would drop, <laughs> right? And then I had this moment where I thought, oh my God, I could use ChatGPT to do that RFP. And my energy just lifted, took a bunch of just random thoughts around what needed to be in there, dump it in there. And Jeff described the same process as the CEO of Coursera. I, you know, that's what he did. And suddenly I find it triggers a flow state almost immediately when it brings it back organized for me, all those jumbled thoughts. And it's like the heavy lift, the 80% has been done by ChatGPT. And then I say, make me an image, <laughs> right? And it makes me an image. Then I say, let's bring it over to Canva and Canva's now AI powered as well. So you don't even need to know Photoshop. You can make images and you can also edit images. So now everyone becomes a content creator. I think this is such a powerful moment of, you know, a huge unlock. And I think it applies, and this is your idea, that this is a really a good news story for your workforce, as opposed to, as you know, there's a lot of fear out there. Like, this is like archetypal fear at the most, you know, base level that everyone's worried they're going to have their jobs automated away. What are your thoughts around how to navigate that? I think it's very real fear because you can see that AI is going to do your job better than you. But the reality is, if you look at the tasks that you do, the actual tasks, it will automate a lot of those, but they'll be automating it for you. There are some things that they can't do very well still. The creative process, the synthesis, the asking the questions, putting the prompts into AI requires somebody to do that. And so your ability to, first of all, use AI to understand customer needs, use AI to summarize them, use AI to then feed it back. There's a tremendous amount of judgment that's required, yeah. a tremendous amount of wisdom and experience that comes into play there. AI is not going to be able to replicate that anytime soon. So the reality is we'll probably need fewer people to do all the jobs because the tasks themselves will be just fewer. But the need for people still is still very much there. And so I like to say that AI is not going to replace people. It's people with AI that are going to replace people who don't know AI. So upskill right. on AI learn how it's used, that will always create value for yourself and for any employer that you want to go towards. Your employability, your marketability is going to increase significantly if you run towards AI rather than fight it and fear it. So experiment with it, practice it, use it, research and learn as much as you can about other ways because it's constantly changing. You know, I just learned how to use this tool called Blaze today 
to use mm. snippets so I can like quickly cut and paste my snippets for my prompts into any engine that I'm using because I'm constantly trying all the different engines. And it just saved me so much time. Instead, I, you know, I have a Google Docs to cut and paste it. I'm like, now I can just use a snippet with a few keyboard strokes and there it is as my prompt. So little tools like that, like, oh, look at that. You know, find out about it through conversations. I have working groups and mastermind groups that are focused on this that meet once a month. Yeah. I read constantly around newsletters and listening to podcasts, constantly learning and experimenting and trying new things and discarding other things that don't work. So that's what's required in this next. Little aha moments when you get those little wins. Like this morning I had to demo the new add-on with ChatGPT4 and the GPTs that you can sequence now, right? And ran through an entire kind of script of different GPTs in a sequence, effectively kind of created a screenplay, a bunch of images on how it could look and you know, a whole dinner around this within a few minutes and showed an entire audience this kind of workflow. It's just like sort of transcends, in a sense, the heavy lift that would have been required to even approach this. You'd probably have to hire a bunch of people to get it done. It's like beyond your sort of limitations. It opens it up. It, it, it's a huge unlock moment. Now, relative to, you know, your 90-day AI strategy roadmap, and how you look at this sort of big picture as you approach, I would say this is like an architectural project, like the horizontal augmentation and the vertical automation of your company. How do you approach something as big as that? You know, it's like cutting the Gordian knot. Where do you begin? Because <laughs> it's all tied together. Like, do we start with this and use cases? The biggest question I get from everybody is, what's the ROI of Joan of AI? And I go, that's the wrong question to ask. <laughs> The right question I ask, what is the transformational power of generative AI to support our competitive advantage or that might potentially threaten it? How does it impact our business strategy? How do we think about generative AI as an organization based on our values and our purpose and mission and our strategy? So those are the right questions to ask because it is such a transformational technology that unless you understand how it could potentially transform your business or not, but I bet you it's going to be more on the transformational side. Unless you take that perspective, you're going to chase all these rabbit holes of individual use cases and wonder, like, what's the ROI? It's the wrong question to be asking. If you could fundamentally change the way that you serve and create value for your customers in a completely different way, because AI allows you to create products and to deliver them in completely different ways that creates value for your customers. And frankly, their expectations are changing too because of generative AI. You better be looking at what those prospects are and what's the ROI. It becomes irrelevant because if it's going to create you some significant competitive advantage, you will invest a huge amount because you know the value is going to be there. Mm -hmm. There's that, you know, we're again, because we know we're in a phase transition, it's like we get to play with before and after. It's like right next to each other. There's no process in the middle. It's like literally we get to see before and after. And I would almost suggest that, you know, you should be looking for what is that there's almost like redefinition or the next generation of your company. So for example, if you're an auto company, you might have shifted to becoming an auto company that is doing electric vehicles, but you're still producing vehicles. But I think the bigger shift would be we are now a mobility company. Okay, now that is the next generation of your company because it's much more open to a kind of like a, 
a diverse array of applications versus, you know, kind of a one sort of solution that was almost in the sort of old factory model. The new factory, the new kind of model with AI is that it's more like, like a mobility company, much more broad, high chunk in a sense. I think that's part of the shift that's required to see a bigger picture, a bigger opportunity. It's defining what you said before, having empathy for your customers and deciding from a design thinking process, what problem are we deciding to solve? And before our auto companies would say, we're in the process of like, how do we build a better car for people? The car that they want. Now it's like, no, actually the problem we're solving is getting from here to there. So it's digging down deeper into what is a fundamental problem we're trying to solve. And so when I ask people, you know, what is your business strategy? How do you create value for your customers? What's your sources of competitive advantage in delivering that value? And that really calls into question, like, okay, what are the assumptions that we've made? What do we hold to be true? And do they still hold true in a world with generative AI? Or do we need to up our game here and develop new sources of competitive advantage? Because I look at myself as a thinker, as a writer, as a thought leader, analyst, and I realize I'm chump change. Because if you want to know how I think about something, all you have to do is go into ChatGPT and say, you're Charlene Lee, answer this question. It'll answer just like me and probably better than me because it knows everything that I've written and said better than I can remember what I've said. So what's the value proposition for me now if you don't need me anymore? Mm, interesting. So that was the existential question I had to grapple with a year ago. <laughs> it's like... Wow. And I sat down and I realized like 70% of the tasks that I do are going to be automated. And I'm like, thank goodness, because there were just mindless tasks that are, you know, part of research and writing and just reading and summarizing and then writing some more. And it's so much faster and easier now. And the 30% have everything to do with how I bring a new perspective on things. What hasn't been said? What have I not said? What have I not thought about? How do I think things in different ways? That is my source of competitive advantage is that I can think and process all the information that's out there and draw new and different insights that create aha moments for people. That is my source of competitive advantage. And generative AI cannot take that away. As long as I keep coming up with fresh insights and I use generative AI to just do that better and faster, and that pace is accelerating so much better than it could be in the past, I will be able to stay ahead of myself. <laughs> so I'm literally racing against myself to create value for my clients. I mean, you're the curator, right? You make good choices and you steer it. That's our job. And I think you're also, I mean, our generation is in a great place in the sense that we've got the base of the pyramid, like a lot of those skill sets established. Then we get to have Gen AI on top of that. To me, that's huge. If you actually haven't had those skill sets initially established, I think that's going to be challenging. That's a whole nother conversation. The last thought I had was we would be remiss if we didn't talk about safety and guardrails and you know, the existential threat, the opportunities are huge in our own community. We talk about the idea of optimistic dystopian, like you have to hold the opposites here. This is very, very important. We're doing thought leadership. That's really important as well, because ultimately this is just one of those moments, very rare in history where science and philosophy kind of like come together and go, everything we're doing has an existential impact on humanity. So when an organization or a company comes to us and says, like, I love the concept and the promise of an AI-powered company, but I'm concerned about safety. How do you navigate that? Well, I asked them, when was the last time you had a discussion around ethics and responsibility in your organization? The answer is usually never. 
we typically don't talk about these kinds of things. Like, what does it mean to be ethical? Are we just ethical? What does it mean to be responsible? Are we just responsible? And so I'll give you an example. I was working with a firm earlier this week on a strategy framework for their AI. And a question came up that said, well, how much should we disclose to our clients that we're using AI to deliver the output? Because if they knew that it took less time for us to process all this data, they may be inclined to say, we're going to pay you less. But we could also argue that because we're using AI as a special tool set that nobody else has and we have this data, you should be charging us more because the insights that we have are going to be deeper and better and more personalized to you. But you can see it both ways. What should we say to our clients? Now, do we tell them or do we not tell them? And my answer to them was, what does your ethical and responsible AI framework and principles inform you about that? And so you can see why if you don't have that framework, if you don't have a foundation that's rooted in your values and your strategy and your purpose, like everything, these are the things that will not change regardless of whatever technology comes to you. Then you have a foundation to say, well, how do our values inform us about this decision? And I'll use one of my value standpoints, which is I will always do what's in the best interest of my clients, even if it hurts me. I will recommend that they use a different person if I believe that I could do the job what they're asking for, but I think that this person would do a much better job and meet their needs better. So I'm turning away business from me to give it to a friend or colleague, someone I know very well and respect, because that will serve my client better than I can do it. And that always is going to pay back because the client then trusts me. I mean, that's, and that person will refer things back to me. It's, it's always going to come back. But I believe firmly that whatever is in the best interest of my client, I'm going to let them know. So how would that inform my conversation with them about my use of AI? So that starts, again, these foundational questions. You have to have mm -hmm. figured those things out. Those are the guardrails. Those are your foundational ethics and values that allow you to be safe. So if one of your guardrails, if you're one of your principles is, we will always be responsible in using the data of our customers, our employees, in a very careful way. We will treat it with tremendous respect. We're going to be very careful about how we use it, when we use it, who has access to it. And we're going to write down those guidelines because we value this so carefully. It's really important us to protect these assets that we have, to protect the relationships. Because if we ever broke that trust, it would be disastrous for us. So we're going to be super safe. Now, if that is clear as the intention, and it's reflected in everything that you do and the training that you have and the respect of how you enter into using that data when you talk about that data and how it's used, that's how you ensure that you're going to be safe. That aligns with, I think, Next Collabs and the idea of consciously shaping the future. And it sounds like, you know, consciousness and consciously disrupting yourself as a practice, these are, you know, like the core principles to kind of guide us through this threshold. I really appreciate the conversation, Charlene. And I feel like we're only beginning to get into, you know, the AI moment and the future and how it applies. And I'd love to have you back on Threats, Bets, and No Regrets, how to create a winning generative AI strategy when it's ready. And we can get into the details on your 90-day AI strategy roadmap for organizations and companies. And I think you know, you're the one that said the promise for the augmented workforce is a huge win, and it's really exciting. 
that's the kind of thing I think you can get up in the morning to go to work to do is to unlock that potential within yourself. And I think, as I'm suggesting, collaborative teams plus AI, I think that's going to be huge. And then finally, Charlene, you know, I usually end with some kind of insight. And we've talked about several on this episode uh, that you were at the hackathon and you just kind of, you know, jumped in without really fully understanding what RAG was. And then you had like slowly it starts to dawn on you. And in a sense, an insight um, kind of happens when you do kind of go somewhere like the unknown and you pass through that threshold, that aha moment when even for me working with Pi, I have this aha moment happen quite frequently. Has something like that happened to you recently in the past week or even today since you have this practice of self-disrupting yourself at least three times a day? Share with us one of those moments. It's a very personal one. I'm training for a big race, a Spartan race in March, at the end of March. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's been storming here in California, so I haven't been able to go for a run. And I really dislike running. I really, really dislike it because I'm not very fast. I'm, I'm super slow. I run like 13, 14 minute miles. I mean, it's, I'm super slow. People like, they're laughing at me like, I walk faster than that. Like, I know, tell me about yeah. it. And so I push myself to get out there and set myself a challenge. It was the longest one I've done in a while. And I've been kind of cooped up between weather and travel and things like that. So, you know, go out there and stay on schedule and push myself to run, you know, 40 minutes straight. That was hard. And so I feel like every time I actually get up and put on my running shoes and get out the door, it's like a huge disruption for me. This is not something I'm comfortable with. And it's really hard to push myself. Uh, between that and, you know, eating well and then pushing myself and being able to be as vulnerable and as personal in every conversation to really push myself to the edge. It's like, okay, what can I share? What can I think about and explore that's going to push me to that edge? It's always a great thing. And th these conversations with you, Michael, for example, are always like, push. I'm like, oh, let me think about it that way. I never thought about it that way. So how do I articulate that? So those are always great examples, I think, of pushing myself out of my comfort zone to achieve that disruption. I love that latter example of in your interactions with other people to find a vulnerable share, to connect at a deeper level. And I think most of us inherently think those vulnerable shares, people go, really, I'm not that interested in you anymore or whatever. It's like, it's just the opposite that Brenny Brown has like proven this time and again, that it actually creates glue. You know, we can really relate to each other when we take that chance and be vulnerable. So I appreciate ending on that note. And so tell us where we can find you, uh, how our listeners can find you. Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place. It's easy to find me there. You can follow me, get all my latest updates. I do a live stream every week. I publish lots of posts and I write an article in my newsletter every week so you can follow and subscribe to those. And you can always go to my website too, charlinglee.com. Okay. Absolutely wonderful conversation and look forward to part two on your next book. And with that, thanks to everyone. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Next Insight podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Next Insights podcast. If you enjoy this episode, take a screenshot and share it with a friend. And if you really love the podcast, head over to wherever you're listening and leave a rating or a review. This helps our show get in front of more people interested in shaping the future of science, technology, and consciousness. Finally, to receive even more insights on what we're discussing, thinking, and reading at Next Collabs, sign up for our weekly newsletter by clicking the link in the show notes. I'll talk to you next week, but until then, consciously embrace disruption, my friends.